0: Is that daredevil? No, it is just recognizing that part of life is determining what level of adventure do you want.
1: What level of adventure do you want? Maybe you're more reserved, uncomfortable with pushing things too far. Maybe you're more moderate, you know, willing to test the limits every now and then.
0: Or maybe... For many of us, life will be lived at the fullest By getting as close to the edge of life as you can possibly get without going over. But that is a fine line.
1: Hey there. Welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. I'm taking a quick vacation this week for the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you get the opportunity to do the same. I'll be at home with my family, uh, probably dominating my mom in Scrabble more than a few times. I normally string together those two to three letter words in one play and the points pile up quickly. You should try it sometime. Anyway, we're throwing it back this week to episode 135 with Peter Metcalf. He's the CEO of Black Diamond Equipment and an important figure in the outdoors industry. By the way, for those of you who are really into the outdoors industry, check out another podcast. It's called Audio Outdoorist, and it's put on by the Outdoor Industry Association and hosted by yours truly, in the first series, we talk to companies who have committed themselves to domestic manufacturing. Made in the USA. Check it out. OIA Audio Outdoorist. Peter Metcalf is the CEO of Black Diamond Equipment, board member of Outdoor Industry Association. Uh, He wasn't always all business, though. Uh, He's climbed some pretty audacious routes in Alaska, including the first alpine ascent of the central rib on Mount Hunter's uh, south face. And uh, Black Diamond started when Chenard Equipment filed for bankruptcy. Peter and some other passionate climbers scrounged up some money, bought out the assets,
0: you grew up in New York, though, I read, Peter. Yeah, that's right. I was a New York City boy who then crossed the border out of Queens, escaped a mile or two into Nassau County. And, you know, growing up in the late 50s and 60s in that area, there were still empty lots. There were still the green belts along the freeways. And I just. was growing up at a time where there was a posse of kids and we would just, it was a time where parents thought it was fine, even when you're five years old, see it at at 7.30, have breakfast, hop on your bike, and don't forget to be home by 6. And we would go off on our bikes, hiking, exploring. I mean, our heroes were the little rascals, spanking his gang, most creative, resourceful, out there kind of group of kids that I just wanted to emulate and kind of had that little rascals trying to emulate the little rascals existence just outside of the city and in the city. And uh, along the way, I did what every kid my age did in 1965, 66, joined Boy Scouts Mm -hmm. uh, because they would take you on trips and serendipitously, the two scout leaders skied, backpacked, did the real thing, not just in the city Uh and also had rock climb. And they introduced me as a 12, 13, 14-year-old to all these great activities.
1: Yeah. So in these days, falling in love with climbing in the east and then heading west isn't really that uncommon, but 40, 50 years ago, it was. How did you eventually make it out west?
0: I really was smitten by, I mean, the first real backpack trip I took, which I'm ashamed to admit, um, Admittedly, it was 1965 or 66 with yucca packs and very little gear. The ethos at the time was very Daniel Boone-like, and I think we contributed to making um, Slide Mountain in the Catskills and above Treeline Peak. Um, But we got very smitten by it, and very quickly got to go on some extended backpacking trips with my troop leaders, some uh, skiing up in the Presidentials, hiking and skiing, And the the trooper leader realized that I was trying to scramble up everything I saw. I thought I'd kill myself. And so he invited me when I was 14 in the spring of 1970 on a AMC beginner rock climbing weekend in the Shuangunks. And that was phenomenal. Went a couple of times. And then in the fall of 1970, there was a TV show, one hour special. I think it was called like Journey to the Limits or something. I just happened to watch it, what, what year and it was is this? on. Um, it was the fall of 1970. Okay, uh-huh. and it was on this relatively new mountaineering school that had just started in the Wind Rivers of Wyoming by a guy named Paul Petzel, mm-hmm. a legendary mountaineer called Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School. I watched that thing, and I just told my parents, "I have to go. I'm going to work all winter. I'm going to save every penny, but I got to go to this five week mountaineering school." And they were super supportive because they thought I was gonna go kill myself and uh, anything that might prevent that was fine by them. So in early June, right after getting out of school of nineteen seventy one, hopped on a flight, never been west before to Denver, and then another puddle jumper that landed at Riverton, Laramie, I mean all over. I think it landed five times before it finally landed in Lander, Wyoming. June, 1971. If you ever saw Brokeback Mountain, that oh, okay. was Wyoming. Huh. That time frame, 1971. And did that five-week mountaineering course in the winds um, with Paul Petzel, Don Peterson, who'd just gotten off a of Tissac, Half Dome with Royal Robins. And that changed my life. It, at the end of that, I hitchhiked up to the Tetons, climbed Baxter's Pinnacle, the Grand, and other things. I was 15 at the time. And committed myself to a life of climbing, not business, climbing, mountaineering, <laughs> that sort of thing.
1: So at that time, did you have any desire or at any point during that time, I guess, did the thought come through your mind, well, I'll like climb now for 10 years and then figure it out, maybe I'll own a business someday?
0: No, you know, I'm an accidental businessman, okay. um, honestly. Okay. But the... The fact is is that I became as much of a full-time climber as one could in 1970s and early 80s America. I slowly got through college. I think it took me seven years because I'd do a year on, a year off to climb and earn money. I worked, I finally got out of school, left the east, went went west, worked on drilling rigs each winter as a chain hand, roughneck drunk chain during the first oil boom of the late 70s.
1: I read that. What does that exactly mean?
0: Chain hand. I, yeah, I, well, I, I think they probably still may be drilling for oil in the same way because you got to keep it simple because the skill levels of the people working on the rigs is not all that high. And what chain hand means is when you drill a hole for oil, whether you're going down 5,000, 10,000, or 20,000 feet, you're doing it with drilling pipe and you're forcing drilling fluids and muds down the pipe, um, both for lubricants and to keep pressure up because uh-huh. you are going to hit liquids down there. And each time you connect a section of pipe, you have to connect them and twist them. And the way that it's done is one piece of pipe is 10 feet about, or less than that, five feet. And then as it's being pushed down, you break the connection from the, the, the device that's twisting the pipe. And then you grab with a crane, another big pipe, they're very heavy. And a couple of guys quickly, with the crane's lifting it, guide it into place, pop it down to the, the screw holes, and then it's got to be twisted. But before you put it down there, I have wrapped a chain around the lower section. The upper section goes on. And at that moment, then, I take that chain and I throw it up the pipe. So it wraps it's, it it's okay. like a hula hoop goes up the pipe. The driller then hits the device. It puts torque on that chain. Then you grab the chain, palming it keep pressure on so it doesn't slide it does the initial spin of the pipe into the screw holes that are there and then you quickly let go grab these big hydraulic tongs and bring them in to tighten it and then you start the whole process all over again
1: sounds sounds like a pretty simple process like
0: <laughs> it is a pretty simple process um there is some danger you just have to be careful there's big heavy equipment moving all over the place mm-hmm. Um, but it made great money. You're out in the desert. And I will say this, living out in the desert of Wyoming in the two winters, living on the rig site, I was on a on-site seven days on, seven days off. I, I developed an appreciation for the very sublime beauties of the high desert hmm. that I didn't have before. I thought of it at first as kind of a wasteland. You drive I-80 across Wyoming, Utah, whatever, and you think, oh, what a godforsaken place. And then as you live out there, sunrise, sunset, hmm. the winter, the snowfalls, you begin to appreciate this the myriad of wildlife and plant life and the beauty that exists in this very fragile environment.
1: That's cool. All right, anyway, back to, sorry, I interrupted you there with the ah. oil thing. So you're climbing. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: So, you know, after doing that for a couple of years, I can't say that I enjoyed working on the rigs. I don't know if anybody's ever enjoyed working on the rigs. It's just the you know, arduous and dangerous. Um... And I just determined by 19, really beginning about 81, that I was beginning to wonder, what am I going to have a career? I'm not going to make it. I don't think I can make it as a climber. I was working uh, part of the summers as an outward bound instructor for a couple of years, doing some freelance guiding, um, things like that. But it was really hard to make a go of it. But this was early 1980s, and some of my climbing buddies had, in the last year or two, gotten this new job. It sounded pretty easy to me called a sales rep where the burgeoning but still embryonic American outdoor industry a la Patagonia, mm-hmm. the North Face, wilderness experience, they were beginning to hire sales reps because these stores were opening called specialty outdoor shops who would stock this stuff to meet the demands of this growing outdoor user community. And they needed people to be driving around in territory, showing it to, to, the, to retailers and, and, and selling it. So I thought maybe that's something I could do. And so I began some communication with various people at companies I had met over the last many years. I had been sponsored by various companies on my Alaskan climbing expeditions. that had done quite a bit of pioneering hard new routes in Alaska and communicated with a lot of people. Um, nothing really seemed to connect that felt right to me. But then after I returned from Alaska in the May of 1982, I'd just done a bunch of climbing up there and been gone a while. There was a letter waiting for me, you know, this is before fax machines and emails and that kind of stuff. You, you actually sent people letters and, uh, there's a letter waiting for me from the general manager of Patagonia clothing. He said, Hey, you know, you've talk to us and Yvonne about being a sales rep a couple of times. We've gone back and forth for the 12 months, not finding anything. Well, we just split Patagonia clothing and and short equipment up. Short equipment is a $900,000 a year business. Um, Yvonne thought he could run it, but he's really focused on Patagonia. He really needs somebody to run it. And he's looking for somebody who's a climber. And, and had many of the experiences that you had. He feels he can learn the rest from him. Are you interested? And of course, I was interested. So I quickly wrote a letter back, um, made a long distance phone call, which for somebody with no money <laughs> was a big deal to reach them. I mean, you got to think back at this time. I mean, just making a long distance phone call is a big deal okay. for a climber. And I um, had to go to my friend's house because I didn't have a house. And uh, to do that, and, find out how much was that call but anyway make a long story short to call back and um, talk to Yvonne in a week he wasn't around and before that week was up I put together a set of ideas on what I'd do if I was the general manager of this iconic little climbing equipment company made the first FedEx shipment of my life with the last five bucks I had make sure he had it before the phone call and at the end of the call, Yvonne said, I want to interview you. I want to I want to meet you. And I had seen him in the valley, but we didn't know each other. And the problem was I had two three contracts that somebody worked out with bound, 21-day courses teaching in the South San Juan climbing, mountaineering. And I wasn't going to break those. And so finally we found, oh, a date here in between two courses. He said, I didn't have a car, but he said, get up to Jackson. I'm going to be teaching an ice climbing class on the north face of the Grand. Uh, in late July, it seems like that would fit between your classes. You get up here, you help me teach it. We'll use that as the interview, and we'll make some determinations. So I had a good buddy at would Bound who had a little Volkswagen. I convinced him that I'll, I'd pay for gas, and we could have a great time jetting up to Jackson from um, Silverton, and he could come up on the glacier too, hang out, and meet this legend, uh-huh. Yvonne. Anyway, make a long story short, at the end of the three days, he looked at me, wrote down an address, and he handed it to me. I "Go, what's that?" And he goes. "That's an address in Munich. You need to be there on September 6th because there's a trade show uh, in Munich that we're attending at. That's your first day of work. Just get there." <laughs> Didn't even think about asking who was paying to get there. <laughs> 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 what was I going to do? Or I just said, "You got it." <laughs>
1: oh man, this all happened pretty fast it seems like.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was it was um, yeah, the way I looked at it was I mean, I put a lot of effort into convincing him to hire me, mm-hmm. and I, I think I had a lot of good ideas. But at the same time, the way I looked at it was, I've never been to Cali, I've never been to Southern California, I've never been to Ventura. Shana Equipment was iconic; he was a legend, and working a winter in Ventura sounded a lot more in the Southern California sounded a lot more attractive than working another winter in the Red Desert on a drilling <laughs> right? <ride. laughs>
1: Sounds like it. Uh, so anyway, Shenard Equipment, I read, ran into some legal headwinds. Uh, well, I'll, I'll post some links to your page. There are a few good articles about it. Um, but can you can you briefly just tell us like how that story goes? I guess and and when it became Black Diamond equipment rather than Chenard equipment.
0: Yeah, 1980s. It was a revolution in tort law in America, and that's plaintiffs' law—the ability to sue a company if you feel they didn't supply you with adequate warning language, instructional information, and the like. Insurance equipment was a high-profile victim of this revolution mm-hmm. in tort law. And insurance premiums went through the roof. We got in rapid staccato uh, four or five lawsuits. It was very serious. Patagonia at this point in time was $90 million. We couldn't afford the insurance. Insurance was very mediocre. And Yvonne just realized at that point, as did other people in, who are making football helmets, scuba tanks, and things like this, there wasn't a future to do this. You would be litigated out of business and lose everything. So that at that point, Yvonne decided that he was done. His passion for what was going on in climbing had really waned. He was very passionate about Patagonia. And so he put it into a Chapter 11 bankruptcy and asked me to put together a plan to liquidate the assets with the least loss of money as quickly as possible. And that's when I said to him, look, do me a Let's do all of us a favor. This company has such a pedigree and such a legacy, such a history. I've spent the last seven years of my life giving this everything, building it up, growing it from under a million to six million. We have a great product. We're making a difference. The community needs a a business to champion these issues of great importance. There was no access fund, no no winter wildlands, no outdoor industry association. There were no user advocacy groups, no industry organization, nothing. And the vision I had was to create an organization that was there to make a difference on behalf of a fellow community of users, of which I and my peers and my employees were all part of. And that was to, one, continue to bring forth really paradigm changing, robust, innovative products to make your experiences safer, more enjoyable, or more comfortable. And secondly, to be an advocate for the for the for the community on access, stewardship, on preservation, education, because no one else was there. And as w- as well as your privilege to place bolts in a thoughtful and responsible manner. So that was the idea behind creating this business. Was that the fear was that American climbing, American mountaineering, and even off piece skiing. Was at risk. I mean, you cannot ski out of a ski area in 1989 when Chard filed for bankruptcy in the late winter of '89. If you skied out of bounds of a ski area, you would lose your ticket, you would be fined $500, and that was a lot of money then, and you would spend a night in jail. And creating Black Diamond was about creating an organization that was going to be an advocate for the community of which we were part of that had defined our lives. And that we were very committed to. So that was the idea. It was a it was a mission. It was a quixotic mission.
1: That's cool. Okay, now how about the name, Black Diamond? I'm assuming there's more to it than you know the Black Diamond we ski on ski resorts. See on ski resorts. How did you get the name Black Diamond?
0: Really, twofold. One is we wanted there to be some sort of visual branding connection with Shinnard Equipment because we were going to be, continue the legacy, the history of innovation that Shinnard Equipment had. That's where we all came from. That's where we had learned the ropes, the style of doing business, et cetera. And what was interesting was, was that the company, not Yvonne, owned the company trademark. We, he owned his name, but he didn't own his original trademark, which was a Diamond C the diamond c is a blacksmith's mark so we were going to get this diamond c and we thought okay we got a diamond c how do we use the diamond c and you know calling it diamond mountaineering or something just didn't seem very very interesting so we brainstormed and we brainstormed we had 9 months to brainstorm we didn't couldn't come up with anything couldn't come up with anything and then it's somewhere along the way near the 12th hour where it looked like we were amazingly enough actually going to succeed in raising enough money going through the legal hurdles of creating a new business and this business nobody thought we were going to succeed the the legend is that oh it was just a, a simple transition it was a whole new business raising money at this point in time for a business that was in bankruptcy threatened by liability and litigation this was so unlikely to happen that no one believed it was going to happen um, so, we had a lot of time to figure this out. And in the end, we picked the Black Diamond name. One, because in the C in black, we could use the Diamond C icon. And more importantly, or as importantly, Black Diamond communicated and symbolized several things. One is, you know, it's skiing, obviously, Black Diamonds are the expert run. But climbing. Certainly back in the when I started in the late 60s and 70s and 80s, it was a James Dean bad boy, unorthodox outsider kind of activity, a little bit rogue. And, you know, black sheep, black diamond. Yeah. Um, we like that sort of iconoclastic bad boy component, to black diamond. In addition to that, black diamonds exist, but they're very rare. So we like that idea. And then last, and certainly not least, what we really liked, coming from a group of climbers who had never run a business before, who never started a business, had run a division, really, of Patagonia. Um, but this was new for us, and we were climbers. And a black diamond is a piece of coal that has made good under an intense amount of pressure.
1: Oh, wow!
0: <laughs> so we figured that That was a great name. This is what we were going to try to do, transform these assets and ourselves into something beautiful, special, that would be a highly coveted and appreciated organization within the community that we were committed to and a part of.
1: That's so cool. To be completely honest, the only one of maybe those four reasons that you mentioned uh, was the, the skiing Black Diamond. Very refreshing to hear all of the other reasons.
0: No, thanks,
1: Ben. Thanks. You're listening to Mountain Meister. This is our discussion with Peter Metcalf, CEO of Black Diamond Equipment. If you're new to Mountain Meister, you can catch all 130-plus of our conversations with other outdoors industry professionals and athletes at mtnmeister.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, the next part of this interview is pretty interesting, given the timing. We recorded with Peter on May 15th, 2015, and Dean Potter's death in Yosemite was the day after, May 16th. Now, you'll hear Peter refer to an athlete here. That is not Dean Potter. However, both of these athletes were dropped by Cliff Bar's team a few months ago when they rearranged their sponsorship agreements. All right, back to the show. I'm I'm curious I want to change it up a little bit um, yeah we feature a lot of sponsored athletes on Mountain Meister we've had Black Diamond sponsored athletes we had Hazel Finlay the other day oh yeah very appreciative great. Mm-hmm. and so you, you're paying them a small amount of money from what I've heard it's not any exorbitant amount of money uh, to support that climbing and in return they need to represent the brand positively do some film social media activity things like that so, a few months ago, uh, you know, I'm sure, Cliff Bar announced that they were dropping some athletes from their teams uh, because of free soloing or other, you know, maybe pushing the element of risk too far for at least what Cliff Bar was comfortable yeah. for. Yeah. Uh, Black Black Diamond's obviously a different brand. How, how do you feel about this? Do you have any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I sure do, because that athlete is, is somebody who is a Black Diamond athlete as well, and I know him very well, and... I will, you know, I, I have a, a, a high, high degree of respect for the founder and the management team at Cliff Bar. I know many of those people. It's a great company. So, what I'm about to say is by no means a negative comment of Cliff Bar. It just is we're different. So, we know the athletes well that we sponsor and work with. And in this case, with this one athlete, he's not a daredevil. He is, quote, just and I use that kind of jokingly, one of the best, most competent breakthrough climbers of our generation. And what he goes off in Dev, I, yeah, it is dangerous from the standpoint of, quote climbing puts you in situations of tremendous consequence. How serious the consequences are of your actions are directly dependent on what are you doing and how competent and skilled are you at your craft that individual is one of the most competent, highly skilled individuals of all times relative to climbing. His mind control is amazing, and none of us here at Black Diamond consider him a daredevil. We're inspired by him, we admire him, and we're in awe at what he does. And so we're comfortable with that. But I could, I could certainly see situations where somebody else tried to emulate him that we'd want nothing to do with because that person would be doing it for fame or fortune, Mm -hmm. not because of personal reasons that they didn't have the competency and you just were fearful that they would just go kill themselves. So you have to understand the motivation of the individual. If you're going to sponsor them, how skilled are they? Are they really, what's the risk factors knowing that there is risk in that kind of climbing there's certainly risk in high altitude alpinism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say that as a climber, yeah, you know, I got into this as we talked about very young, and some of my first alpine climbs that I did as a 15, 16 year old. Six, seven years later, the mentors of mine were all dead. I mean, it, there has been in the world of alpinism, high altitude alpinism, it's like Russian roulette, and there was an article on that at one time. And is that is that daredevil? No, it is just recognizing that part of life is determining what level of adventure do you want. And for many of us, life will be lived at the fullest by getting as close to the edge of life as you can possibly get without going over. But that is a fine line.
1: Well put. Black Diamond's also known for environmental activism, being very responsible, as you said before. Yet, there's it's almost hypocritical, probably not, but... Everybody's encouraged to get outside and enjoy their surroundings, yet at the same time, there's like this huge industry component behind it that, you know, like these products use natural resources to create things or to allow us, I guess, to play in environments. How do you balance like this eco-friendly approach and at the same time say, okay, like the market wants gear, we need to make it?
0: Yeah, uh, really good questions, and certainly those politicians, those people who do not agree with our environmental conservation, preservation ethos, enjoy vilifying or demonizing us as the world's biggest hypocrites. That, hey, do you drive a car? (laughs) Then shut up about drilling for oil. Um, Do you go use the the backcountry? Then shut up about taking care of it. And you know, my answer to that is that it isn't a binary situation. It isn't a or B. Um, I mean, if it was a or B, we should all be running around naked and eating grass. Right. Right. right, But we have learned how to build societies and civilizations that can be, can have a very low carbon and environmental footprint. And I think that's, what BD is saying, I mean, let me give you a case in point here. Just, I live in Utah, and this is where we're located. It's a wonderful place. We have a lot of challenges here, and one of them is our water use. We're a desert state with less water than all but Nevada, and we have the highest per person water consumption within of all but two states. What's ro- so, and my point here is that human beings use water And to engage in water conservation is just the the right thing to do before you turn everything into a desiccated desert and you run out of water. There's enough water if we do this thoughtfully. So my point here is that for Black Diamond, it is about thoughtfully running this business. It is about people thoughtfully engaging in the wilderness, thoughtfully climbing in a way that leaves no trace, they can go back there with the least amount of impact, because if we just said nobody should go into the, the the wilderness, how many people are going to advocate for its preservation? It becomes sort of like a museum or a storeroom of stuffed animals or something. And so I, I don't find any anything hypocritical about that, so long as you are doing your best in a sincere, thoughtful, committed manner to reduce the footprint that you have in. Um, what you produce, how you produce it, and that sort of thing. And then I should also say that you know, there is a, a real difference between Black Diamond and Patagonia. We are genetically related, obviously, to Patagonia. We're dear friends with everybody there, and they're a company I admire usually, and I think they admire us. And the reason I'm doing this compare and contrast is that for for Patagonia, in a nutshell, their mission is to, in many ways, is to be as sustainable as possible, to have the least impact possible. And part of the reason I and others buy many Patagonia products Mm -hmm. is, besides the fact that they are beautiful, is they've done that with the, the, the least impact possible. And that's their mission. That's what they're trying to do. For Black Diamond, that is not our end. That is a means. And what I mean by that, as I shared earlier, The sustainable why behind why I started this business with my peers was, quote, to make a difference for a fellow community of users. And as I shared with you earlier, we were going to do that three ways, through product, through advocacy, and through our word and print and media attempt to be as encouraging and affirming to you as to why you have made some hard decisions to live a lifestyle of climbing, mountaineering, and off-piece skiing that's more than a sport and to do it with the least impact possible that we could do. But that's a difference, right? Mm-hmm. For us, it's, it's, that is a means to an end. For Patagonia, it's really the end, and I admire that, but we were created to champion the issues of a community and to do it carefully. It's, BD is a reflection and a manifestation of what I believe are the values, the ethos, spirit, and culture of climbing. And one of those is, I believe, is style. The style in which you accomplish your goals is every bit as important as what you set out to accomplish. When I first arrived in the Shuangang in the spring of 1970, that was very impressed upon me by the AMC, was that how you climb something, and then as nuts came into the scene, how you protected it, and whether you hung from your gear or you climbed it clean was really, really important. And everything that was going to have been climbed, every peak had already been climbed, so it was by roots and style. And so that is, to us, every bit as important as Black Diamond. The style in which we accomplish our goals is every bit as important as what we set out to accomplish. So that means sustainability. That means having the most modest footprint possible while still bringing forward gear gear, the innovative gear, the safe gear, the light gear that our customers demand—it um, means championing the issues of great importance. It's it's all those things.
1: I'm learning a lot from you, Peter. This is great. I like this. Um, one more one more tough question before we get to a yeah. few easy ones. So uh, I'm a business owner and starting to pick up some sponsorship dollars for Mountain Meister uh, at a time when executive pay is kind of through the roof in this country. How do you justify what you are worth to Black Diamond?
0: (laughs) You know, A, that's a very good question. And I have to say, first, I fully agree with you. I think it's obscene the salaries that executives are commanding at the Fortune 500 companies and many more I think it's an indictment of the fact that the boards are not doing the jobs that they should. But I also recognize that then it becomes an arms race mm-hmm. that until others' boards get responsible, if you're looking for a strong talent, many of the, the better talents, not everybody um, goes for the money. But coming then to Black Diamond, you know, we're not a large, super large company and, you know, my pay is public. Yeah, um, I looked so at it. It's theft.
1: not. It's not unreasonable.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think so. And I will say that at that point, so, yeah, that the size we're at, um, the modest. I mean, the hours I work, what I've brought to this. I mean, I'm very pleased with it, but it is a lot more than I earned just five years ago or three years ago. And you know, this company got to a pretty good size with a pay that was not meaningfully more than the next tier of management. -hmm. Or and below that, um, because I believe in a, a, a more egalitarian system. At the same time, I do believe that your your leadership team sweats bullets. That there is a group of people who really are responsible to lay out, in collaboration with a management team, a strategic plan to be responsible for executing, to make the hard calls, and to roll up their sleeves and be there and have the buck stop with them. And that, that those hours, that stress, mm-hmm. that competency, that's worth something. But it's not worth the level of obscene pay that we see today with a large number, if not probably the majority, of larger 500 million are not publicly traded companies. Mm-hmm. And there are exceptions for sure, but it is pretty disgusting. And I don't know how you change that.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a whole other topic. Um, all right, we'll lighten it up. We want to talk about gear. We get a gear recommendation from all the Meisters that come on the show. Um, for you, I want to hear your favorite old piece of Black Diamond gear, your favorite new piece of Black Diamond gear, and then what's coming in the future. What has you excited? So let's start with old. Okay.
0: Um, you know, when I, when, I, when I go back a ways to product, that we've had for a while. You might be surprised, but I mean, I'm just still in awe of a couple of things. Number one is the stoppers that we are producing today, and we have cool new designs in the pipeline, so the current stoppers will be there for a long time. But that was something that was one of the first products I redesigned when I got to Shunard Equipment in 1982. It took a couple of years for us to perfect that shape, but there's a quote by St. Exubery, the author of Windstar and Sands, We said that perfection is reached not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away, when a body has been stripped to its nakedness and the lines are perfect. And I think our stoppers, even though now they are over 30 some years old in design, I think they are just immaculate and and just perfect. And so I love them. I loved them when we came out with them. I climb actively now. I was using them down in on Yaman Man, Sister Superior Tower on Sunday. And I just, they're brilliant. I love them. And then you go more modern, the Cobra Ice Tour, which, by the way, is in the Smithsonian um, Institute oh, for its wow. Beauty, um, which we came out with probably seven years ago. I still think it's a paradigm of an all-around modern ice axe, and it changed the game. It set a new paradigm for what a modern ice axe should look like. And it's just exquisitely beautiful. So it's so pleasing to the eye. It is sublime to hold. And it does its job so damn well. And then I will also say that um, a product that was another product I worked on for years before we launched it in the 1986, the very crude first one, they seemed very modern then, the Camelot, which set a new standard in spring-loaded camming devices. Yeah, we've gone through three generations. They dominate the world over. But I would just tell you audience, though I love them immensely, and I had triples on certain sizes this weekend. um, we're coming out with Camelot lights in the trade shows and and we're gonna start showing them next month. They will be in stores in February of 2016, but they are twenty-five percent lighter than current Camelots that means i mean it's a huge amount and they would be the, the lightest cams in in the world and you compare put that with our like neutrino carabiner or something it's amazing so what that means is old farts like me who are getting older and older can continue to climb at the same level they have because the gear is getting better and lighter even though they are becoming less fit and less capable
1: <laughs> well put For the listeners, check him out on Peter's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Last question for you. Who would you like to hear as the next person on this show?
0: Can I give you three possible suggestions?
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'll tell you why. One is, if you want a climber, there's a Salt Lake City young man who to me is incredibly inspiring because he just captures for me The, I was going to say the next generation, but it's probably two generations down, a a late, a mid 20, a late 20 year old alpinist who is one of the most, not only technically adept, but adventurous, soul seeking, beautiful individuals, as far as an outgoing personality that I have ever met. And I cherish every moment I have around this guy because he makes me feel 20 years younger. And he is so affirmative to me that every generation to come will always have the golden years out in front. No matter what somebody accomplishes, another generation can find a way to have a balls out, amazing, inspiring adventure. And that guy's name is Kyle Dempster. He owns a coffee shop in town called Higher Ground. He's really around because he's exploring the world as an alpinist, including cycling across. Uzbekistan and then climbing big peaks but you should get Kyle he's amazing as a climber then if you want to s- mix it up and get somebody who is an ex- exploratory climber around probably a little bit younger than me but is leading a whole new discipline and a whole new school at the University of Utah his name is Jeff McCarthy he's written a couple of books and he is heading up the University of Utah's program, School of Environmental Humanities, trying to use the humanities as a vehicle, i.e., the written word, um, as a way to promote an environmental conservation ethos in the world. Fascinating work they're doing. Terry Tempest Williams involved with that, and many other people. An amazing discipline that is a synthesis of many other disciplines. And then the third person who really needs to be interviewed before he gets older, and he wouldn't <laughs> like me saying that he's, because he's, he's the fitness mentally and physically of a late 30-year-old, even though he's 71, but is Rick Reese, the founder of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, um, a person who has been is probably the most accomplished, unknown, environmentalist, conservationist for the American West. Knowing a pioneer climber who's put up new roots all over. But like I say, nobody knows him because he's always been willing to bury his ego and let his ideas be manifested in others. But Rick Reese, at 71, is just one of the unsung heroes of our generation for the conservation, saving the wild places.
1: So eloquent. For the listeners, keep an ear out for those guys on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Thank you so much, Peter. I said I learned a lot today. I, I'm completely honest. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Ben, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Your questions are great. And it's always a pleasure to have conversations like this. So thank you.
1: Great. For the listeners, check out highlights of today's episode on Peter's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Thanks, Peter.
0: Yeah, thank you, Ben. Bye-bye.
1: That was Peter Metcalf, CEO of Black Diamond. Go check out his Meister profile page on our website. You can go to the search bar up top. Just type in Peter or Metcalf or Black Diamond or whatever. Once again, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. If you'd like to show your thanks for Mountain Meister, head over to our support page, mtnmeister.com. We have various donation options for you to help the podcast out. And to be honest... It wouldn't be possible without you. So thank you to everybody who has supported thus far, and thank you to those of you who are planning a special holiday gift. Until next time, I'm your host, Ben Shank. You've been listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen to it. Thanks for listening to Mountain Master.